And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, what, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, where increasingly anything can happen because everything is happening everywhere all at once. Borrowing kind of ruthlessly from that uh, uh, Hollywood movie from last year that won the Academy Award. It really is true, and there's so much going on that you can see 24-7 on cable news or on Facebook or TikTok or Twitter slash X. We should probably get into some night why Musk changed the name of Twitter to X, which I think has echoes of SpaceX. SpaceX is really a shortened term for Space Exploration corporation. So that has a logic to it. Um, someone sent me the other day a video. I hate videos because you have to look at them linearly. And I haven't had time to really look at it, but this is someone who um, purports to know why Musk has changed the name of Twitter to X, up to and including putting a giant X on top of the building there in San Francisco. And then the state, the state, the, the city made them take it down, and I haven't followed the soap opera further. There's there's so much going on, it, you will be forgiven if you can't follow everything at once. So, tonight we're going to really be sticking with, frankly, of all the news things going on, excepting maybe the hurricane, for which there is tremendous, uh, you know, suffering in, in the Bend region of Florida because of a Cat 4 storm coming a Sure, within one day of warning, it was going to ramp up to a Category 4 from Category 1. I mean, 24 hours, that's, that, there's, there's obviously different points of view as to why this is happening, and we will not solve that tonight. So, except for that story, which is really important to an off a lot of people who still don't have electricity and have water on their lawns and, you know, their houses have been destroyed, the, the probably the most important story we're going to talk about tonight, again, from our perspective, is the Indian Chandrian 3 mission. Because there is now so much documentable weirdness going on around the Indian mission to the moon. First time landing for a third world nation, seeking really dramatically to become part of the first world, and those lines obviously are now very blurry. Um, so we're going to talk primarily tonight about the Chandrayaan-3 mission and some of the things that you will not read about on any normal news. So let's start with item number one. Uh, this is a kind of a mainstream space policy perspective on what the Indians have achieved with their first lunar landing and probably more significantly, their first lunar landing near the moon's south pole. As you may have noticed, everybody who's going back to the moon, except for the uh, Japanese SLIM mission, which, as you know, was supposed to be launched last Sunday, and then at the very last minute, they called a hold because of weather, uh, high-level, I think, upper winds, which is a real thing because you can't have your rocket bending in two directions at once as it's making its ascent. And sometimes those winds can be hundreds of miles an hour. So uh, if they are at the wrong altitude or the wrong speed, launches have to be delayed. And apparently the window for safely getting to the moon was so narrow that the Japanese have had to recycle the count and they'll not try to leave on the SLIM mission, which is the acronym for the Japanese uh, program, until maybe a month from last Sunday, given that the moon moves around the Earth in about a month, and they will be in the right position to try again in about a month. So, be that as it may, the uh, policy analysis of what the Indians have achieved is very interesting. But again, it's very limited, because obviously the mainstream has no idea about artifacts on the moon, extraordinarily ancient, vast global uh, covering 
glass structures, uh, ancient libraries, potentially somewhere near the South Pole, the incredible scientific, economic, and physics breakthrough, to say nothing of technological, you know, fantastic potential jumps for someone, some nation, some private group who reaches the South Pole region where the libraries are presently occurring and finding them and getting access and sending or bringing the data back home. None of that is part of the mainstream perspective. So from our vantage point, and again, we have data tonight to show you, which will blow your socks off in terms of our model of what's really going on vis-a-vis the moon versus um, most other people. It's interesting to read the mainstream perspective to kind of think about how it's going to have to change as the so-called disclosure process, you know, over on the other side of the street, both at the Pentagon and from my perspective, more importantly, at NASA, is proceeding. Because remember, the uh, independent committee that the administrator of NASA set up to look into UAPs, unidentified anomalous phenomenon, which of course now covers everything. Because every scientific question is an anomaly until you get to some predictive answers. So they have built themselves a box which has infinite width and depth. And as soon as that becomes a mainstream news item that NASA has set up an official office to look at unsolved anomalies, unusual anomalous phenomenon, in which they absolutely said at their only public meeting a month or so ago that they were now going to include a search for ET artifacts across the solar system. Well, you can imagine if there are nations and individual groups who are privately looking at those artifacts even now, and they have not spoken up. They have not admitted that that is what they're doing, even though secretly behind the scenes, as we can document tonight, that seems to be exactly what they're doing. And I'm talking to you, India. What is Prime Minister Modi really up to? Well, we'll leave that aside for later in the morning because we have some really amazing new information to present to you. Item number two. Now, when I keep talking about items one, two, three, etc., we're referring to a section of the Other Side of Midnight website called Radio with Pictures. If you go to our um, uh, banner on the main page, on the home page, click on that. That will take you. It's at the very top. It says rather dramatically, if I can get to it quickly here, it says, why is India still hiding ancient Eastie structures on the moon? And they are. We can document that they are. And how they're doing it is as interesting as a Sherlock Holmes mystery. And it again makes one wonder, why are they going to all the trouble if at some point they are going to uh, announce or come forward or come clean with what in fact they're finding? Otherwise, what's the point? Well, maybe the point is to keep it secret until they can capitalize on their discoveries. The only problem is that the Indian human missions, you know, people, astronauts sent by India to the moon, is going to lag years behind NASA and the Artemis program, or even Elon Musk and his starship um, sending initially uh, nine uh, artists in orbit around the moon, and eventually obviously following up with actual landings. Because, of course, Musk is also part of the NASA Artemis program, being the prime contractor for the spacecraft which will take the astronauts from the Gateway Lunar Space Station in 2028 or 9 down to the surface of the moon. There are serious questions as to whether the Indians can be ready to outrun NASA or Musk, given that going to the moon with people 
is light years more complicated and more expensive and obviously more dangerous than sending an unmanned probe. So how this all shakes out politically is uh, still to be determined. Anyway, when you're on that page, which says uh, another banner at the top, the guest page, uh, why is India still hiding ancient ET structures on the moon? Under that, you will see fast links to items. You click on my name. That takes you to the part of the radio with pictures page, which shows you the various items, one, two, three, etc. Interesting kind of co-mingled development. Even while the Indian Chandrayaan-3 mission is still working before the coming lunar sunset where they've landed, which is roughly 19.5 degrees from the lunar south pole, plus 33 degrees east. And those of you who are veterans of the program will recognize that those are two not unrelated and incredibly significant numbers. Even while the Indians are still progressing with their Chandrayaan mission, which they claim is going to end at sunset on the moon when the sun falls below the lunar horizon, the temperatures plummet to like 250 below zero, and they claim their spacecraft, both the lander and the rover, are not prepared to survive a two-week-long lunar night. However, that does not occur until September 6th. Tonight is September 2nd. So why did the Indians just announce, and then we'll go on and we'll come back to this later in the morning, why did the Indians just officially announce on the ISRO uh, official website, ISRO is the Indian Space uh, Research Organization, why did they announce that they have basically parked their rover, little Prajan, which means supreme wisdom in uh, Hindi, why have they claimed now that they, as of this afternoon, have parked it about, uh, you know, 50, 60 feet from the lander and is going to stay there until the lunar dawn comes once again on, I think, September 22nd? Because if they're really saying that this mission is going to end on September 6th, that's four more days that they could get useful science from the rover, so why are they parking it four days early when everything, according to their very meager reporting, has been working absolutely fine? That's only one of the mysteries surrounding the Indian mission, which I do not have an answer for, but maybe our uh, uh, panelists will come up with an idea which we can check. So item number two, while they're doing this, while India is prosecuting their moon mission, still ongoing, they launched this evening, uh, or rather this morning, uh, a mission to study the sun. And they're using the same parking spot, which is the what's called the L1 position, the Lagrange 1 point, which is about a million miles from Earth in the direction of the sun. Remember, the Webb Space Telescope is at the so-called L2 point, which is a million miles behind the Earth, away from the sun. And if, it, if that sounds familiar, if the, if the um, new Indian mission to study the sun uh, from a million-mile orbit away from Earth sounds familiar, it's because there's a number of other spacecraft from NASA and other nations which are parked in that same halo orbit. And that orbit uh, is so huge, you know, it's literally millions of cubic miles that nobody's going to run into anybody. But you might remember that a NASA spacecraft called SOHO uh, is also in that very loosely, you know, drifting um, elliptical orbit. And the spacecraft, once they're there, they, they kind of move back and forth, but they never really leave, kind of like the Hotel California. So without any fuel, they can remain at this distance from the Earth, from the Sun. And so the Indians have followed the NASA SOHO mission by something like 20, 25 years. But they're very proud and they're very now focused on their new solar mission. It's kind of almost like they want the public 
to kind of forget about their still ongoing lunar mission. Because you don't have to wait for a specific day or month or year to launch a mission to the L1 point to study the sun. You can do it any time you want. So why did they choose now overlapping their incredibly historic lunar mission, except maybe to divert attention? Nah, no space agency would do that, would they? Anyway, we will discuss that later in the morning. Item number three. Remember, a few days ago, there was this kind of uh, quasi-race between the Indians who were going to the moon to land on August 23rd, and the Russians, who had not launched a lunar mission in something like 47 years, and then suddenly out of the blue, for most people who were not paying attention, um, they launched Luna 25 as the follow-on to Luna 24, which, as I said, got to the moon back in, I think, 1976, and nothing from the Russians in toward the moon since. Well, a day or so before they were supposed to land on the 21st, something terrible happened, according to the news coming out of Russia, and they said they crashed. Well, you might be forgiven for having a bit of skepticism about official statements coming out of Russia, either way back then or even now. But it turns out, again, according to our own space agency, that via the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been orbiting the moon as a very sophisticated unmanned uh, orbital telescope looking down at the lunar surface and taking, you know, hundreds of thousands of images since 2009, the NASA people running LRO um, were able, about two days after the crash that the Russians claimed for Luna 25, they took a photograph of the calculated trajectory of the errant Russian spacecraft as it spiraled out of control into the moon after a much longer than desired uh, retro burn of the onboard rocket, and they appear to have found the crash site and published side-by-side -side images, that's in number three, of the lunar landscape before the Russians ostensibly crashed, and then after. And they're right there on the uh, uh, Radio with Pictures section of the Other Side of Midnight guest page. Scrolling on down, we now, of course, are into the main topic of the morning, which is the Chandrayaan landing and some of the most interesting, if perplexing, developments which have occurred around this what should have been a rather straightforward landing by an unmanned robotic spacecraft, which because of four more years of intensive technological effort by the Indians since they tried it back in 2019 and their first attempted landing crashed, you would think it would be relatively straightforward. And once they were successfully landed, they would pepper us like the Chinese did back in 2013 with dozens, if not dozens of dozens of images and live videos and panoramas and all kinds of color. And they've done nothing like that. It's now Saturday night. It's 10 days since the uh, Indians successfully landed. And they have released exactly five separate individual images. One in color from the lander, repeated over and over and over again as videos were taken and then replayed on a delayed time scale of the uh, camera pointed at the bottom of the ramp down which the little rover, uh, a day or two after their landing, quietly rolled down and out onto the lunar surface. And if you want to kind of catch up on what that coverage was like, then you can listen to last week's show and just to remind everyone, tomorrow night we had planned a live show dealing with Maui because there are all kinds of bizarre, increasingly credible questions around the horrible Lahaina fire on the island of Maui 
in the Hawaiian island chain. And we had tried to do the program on those new developing data points and mysteries and data confirmations tomorrow night. And our key guest, a prime witness of a lot of this weirdness and strangeness, uh, was not available uh, at the last minute for tomorrow night. So what we're going to do, because of the importance of tonight's show and the new information that we want people to really pay attention to, and things are so confusing these days with so much information coming at us as the old cliche goes, like drinking from a fire hose, that we're going to replay tonight's show again tomorrow night. So if you're too cheap (laughs) to become a member of Club 19.5, or you really can't afford it, or you have friends or neighbors or family or cousins or whatever uh, who can't afford it or who want to kind of dip their toe in the water before they want to uh, sign up for Club 19.5, tomorrow night in its entirety, you'll be able, they will be able to hear this entire show repeated again, including coverage of this really remarkable and historic unraveling of what I really would think would be a kind of a Sherlock's home level un- unwinding mystery. Because none of the things that you would expect a third world nation seeking equality among, you know, the superpowers of the world is happening in India. In fact, as I said a few moments ago, it's almost like with their new solar mission, which they could launch any time they want to. There's no launch windows involved. They decided to launch today, thereby overshadowing in the mainstream press the rather dull, again to the mainstream, coverage of the Chandrayaan-3 lunar mission. Like stepping on your own lines or upstaging someone when you're on a Broadway play by basically just standing in front of them, you know, in terms of the audience. Why is India, again, stepping on its own amazing, as you're going to see tonight, new first-time lunar mission? Hopefully, by the end of the next uh, two and a half hours, we will have shed more light than heat on this important discussion. So let me introduce our panelists tonight. Um, We have Andrew Curry, who, of course, as you know, is a uh, professional artist. He works on movies. He works on commercials. He works on shorts. Um, He's done extraordinary artistic work on our efforts to unravel uh, artifacts both on the moon and Mars and some other planets in between. I don't mean that technically, but you know what I mean. Then we have Ruggiero Kahlo, who is a uh, actually a registered podiatrist, but he turns out to have extraordinary artistic talents, which he has lent to the Enterprise mission and the other side of midnight. And he is with us with some insights and ideas regarding the Chandrian mission. He did a really amazing sketch uh, of a um, uh, human-looking leg bone on the moon, photographed some years ago, by the Curiosity rover, and I noticed just this afternoon that somewhere some news or agency has picked up on that photograph and is talking about the great mystery of a human-looking leg bone on the planet Mars. So, if you wait long enough, things do come around. Then we have Robert Morningstar. Now, the the detailed bios of all these people is basically if you click on that second line under the uh, uh, guest page uh, banner, uh, you'll see that it says uh, fast links to bios. The first line is fast links to items. Those are images or, you know, videos or whatever. The second line is to their detailed biographies. I'm giving a shortened version tonight because you can go and read yourself. So Robert Morningstar is our kind of civilian intelligence analyst. He's got degrees in psychology or is it psychiatry? I always forget. He went to Fordham. Uh, he was involved in a Navy AI program, artificial intelligence. And uh, he does really interesting analyses of all kinds of currently anomalous discussions and events and uh, occurrences. And he will be part of our 
show on next Saturday night if we, in fact, get to do the Maui program. Then we have Ron Gerbrun, who was our resident generalist, who is basically interested in extraterrestrial archaeology, but he knows a lot about a lot of things, so we'd like to have Ron's opinions uh, whenever we can. Holger Eisenberg is with us. He is an imaging expert who emigrated many years ago from Germany to uh, Northern California and is currently speaking us tonight literally, well, not quite literally, but almost from the shadow of the pyramids in Egypt. He's literally in Cairo, where it's about 7.30 a.m., which for Holger is a very decent time. Uh, we're going to be joined later by Arun, uh, who is Andrew uh, Curry's friend, whose uh, family lives in India. Uh, he immigrated to the United States many years ago, and then he kind of drifted north to Canada, where he's working on uh, very interesting uh, professional uh, materials that, uh, you know, ba basically that's all you need to know is that he is connected deeply to what's going on in India. And I'm hoping tonight we will have a firsthand kind of behind the scenes report from his family as to what is occurring around the Chandrian mission there in India, as opposed to the Western press. And then we're joined by Laura London. Now, Laura, her role tonight, she is actually um, a another generalist. Her background is in psychology. She has her own program called Speaking of Jung. You might want to check that out. Um, I did a guest interview with her many, what, I guess two years ago, and it's one of the best uh, sample programs in her archive, which tells you something about the caliber of the people who follow Laura. And last but not least, certainly not least, we have Georgia Lambert with us, not really in her role as our resident metaphysician, but what you may not know, like with Kinthea, Georgia is a very accomplished artist, incredibly accomplished. And I asked her specifically to be part of our discussion tonight because a lot of what we're going to talk about relating to uh, and around the Chandrian mission has to do with color, the real colors of the moon, and why, apparently, the Indian mission is avidly and vigorously suppressing that. I mean, why would you lie about the colors of the moon if you have the technology that's capable of seeing them? And that appears to be, again, according to the evidence, exactly what's occurring. In other words, maybe from the Indian perspective, if they show us real color, it will give the game away. So without further ado, let me open the microphones here. And I, I, I guess I want to go to you, Andrew, first because of your uh, friendship with Arun and with your ability over another week to look at more of these images we've been passing around. And given tonight we're going to be talking about art and color and the striking lunar landscape on which the Indians have landed successfully, but apparently don't want to actually own up to what they're really seeing. Let me go to you first for your reactions. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Richard. Uh, actually, yeah, actually, I, I, I really committed a boo-boo because we're at oh. the bottom of the hour. Sure. So uh, why don't we hold it there? And when we come back, I will obviously bring Andrew on first, and he will tell you, in fact, his impressions. Because this show is definitely one for the history books, given that we seem on the verge tonight of being at the head of breaking news about the Indian mission. Nowhere else are you going to hear or see what you're about to see and hear on the other side of midnight here at 10.30 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, uh, September 2nd of 2023. My guest, too numerous to mention, again, you can go to the bio connection there on the uh, guest page and get detailed backgrounds on everybody whose uh, voices you will hear. For new listeners, I would appreciate if our uh, panelists would identify themselves when they first come on so people can kind of get used to their voices. So without further ado... Sorry, Andrew, for that little kind of teasing intro. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I kind of lost track of time, too. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Um, well, you know how I felt when the the, the um, Indian uh, probe first landed. I immediately saw the colors from the feed that we – well, it was a poor feed we were getting from India, but you could see the colors that were on the moon's surface. And then when the, the lander was beginning to come down the ramp, I believe we are seeing motifs on the surface, and I know some people say, you know, we even had, as you said last week, from some of the more sciencey, uh, you know, grounded so-called people, they were saying, why does the ground <laughs> look so strange? Is that a, you know, an effect of the cameras? And it, no, no, those are real things. And um, well, do you remember you know, what I did after we finished the show last uh, Saturday night? Uh, I called you. Had- Oh, yeah. Like a half an hour because I figured that, uh, you know, your wife was safely in bed and you were free to roam (laughs) and you might still be up. So I did because I had to tell you, and now I'm going to tell everybody, one of the things that Andrew said during that show when we were discussing the uh, fact that around the lander there was these extraordinary uh, geometric uh, glass-like obvious uh, uh, patterns – that I've never seen in such incredible clarity or in prismatic colors anywhere else on anybody's landing on the moon. And so um, one of the things that Andrew had said during the show was, well, it looks like the, 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 the thrust from the descent engines, the uh, rockets which lowered the lander safely to the, to the ground, they blew away the dust the regolith, so-called, which is really, as, as Armstrong said, very fine-grained dust, they blew it away, and they left this, like, clear circle around the lander where you could see what was underneath the very thin covering, inch or two of dust. But if you look in the upper right-hand corner of the photographs that we were displaying in color from right at the base of the lander uh, ramp last week, you could see in the upper right-hand corner of the frame that there was still geometry visible, but that the dust had blown up there like 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 snowdrifts in Minnesota in you know January, and so his model was absolutely confirmed. It didn't get softer and fuzzier toward that upper right-hand corner because it was out of focus or it was too fine resolution for the camera and the distance. It literally was where the dust wound up lying, again, like blown snow, drifting snow, as the lander's rockets uncovered a bare patch of ground, probably 20, 30 feet in in radius in all directions. And so 
whatever is going on on the near the South Pole of the Moon, with about 19.5 degrees from the pole, it's a place where we have never been. It's an environment that no other missions to the moon have ever seen. And it was basically revealed by the very force of the descent engines of the Indian spacecraft. And none of this was discussed or is still being discussed by any of the extraordinarily um, constipated Israel briefings. Andrew. Yeah, not just that, Richard, but the – well, to be fair, it was you and Ron that first discussed the the dust being blown away by the lander. But And I just sort of, you know, chipped that back in. So really it was the three of us and probably probably mostly from you guys and probably I mostly from Ron. I think in golf they call that a gimme, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing too, uh, Richard, is that you mentioned there was a – they gave us a video of the lander sort of exiting down the ramp – and then it started to make these tracks. And I think you either said or intonated that, was that even real or was that more no, of an I, AI No, I said it straight out. I thought, was that right fake? It was an AI because yeah. it wasn't live. Remember, the, the, the Chinese, for all their incredible communist dictatorship and secrecy and propaganda and eavesdropping and you know all the things that Chinese communists do, the thing that I have to laud them for is when they've landed on the moon – Every time they've given us everything they've got, including amazing pictures of the domes, they've kind of blurred them so most people have no idea what they're looking at. But they posted the data. And the and the rover deployment they showed us, they showed us live. They showed us their landing live, and they didn't cut away like the Indians did, you know, like a minute before landing and have their prime minister looming like a giant effigy on the screen with a very stupid animation on the right-hand portion of that screen. So the actuality, the actual landing of the Indian spacecraft never got broadcast. Very, very weird for a country which keeps billing itself as the world's greatest, biggest democracy. I mean, this is bizarre. The Chinese communists are more democratic about what they're doing on the moon than India. Why? Are you asking me? Yeah. Well, it's more like a rhetorical question. Everybody will, <laughs> you know, have an answer, I presume, or at least a well, well-crafted well fake answer. Well, I mean, they're covering up. Um, ah. Having, yeah. I mean, it's another another subterfuge. You know, you know, it's funny. I just want to interject with something really quick. I, I, I was watching this documentary yesterday, beautiful documentary on Walt Disney, and, his, and it was summarized really beautifully. And... Anyways, it tracked his whole his whole career and history, and then eventually his sort of connection with, uh, you know, um, Werner von Braun and and Willie Lay and all these guys. And it's interesting how, you know, there was such a tremendous buildup uh, with, well, at the time, the United States uh, with the push towards outer space. Uh, Walt Disney was the guy to really, you know, do this because the, the guy created a theme park. No one had done this before. And he was able to just bring together a lot of people and, you know, come up with inspiring ideas. And we know from uh, the paintings of your friend, um, uh, Al, uh, Alan, uh, oh, now I had a. Uh, I think you're thinking of my friend Chesley Bonstell. Yes. As Bonstel opposed to the astronaut artist Alan Bean. Yeah, I was looking at the images on your on your um, items, and they're beautiful. But Richard, there was this beautiful buildup, and there, and a few years back, just to add another piece, they unrolled in one of the museums uh, uh, Bonstell's mural that he did of like literally a a crater like where the Indians have landed, and it's actually quite extraordinary what he painted. In, in other words, it's very unusual. But there was all this buildup. And now we come to 2023, and they're they're just lying. They're just making stuff up. I, I don't understand. Like we we had this runway to gloriousness, and then it was muted, and it continues to be. And I I don't. I don't and know. they're I, now I, with the launch to the to the like Soho to the sun, they're stepping on their own incredible story. Because you know the press can't keep more than one thought, certainly about space in their minds more than one time. Yeah. 
Well, I hope something breaks soon, even if it's an accident or somebody actually, you know, actually gives us something. So, well, it's already that- happened. We've already. I'm going to give the game away tonight. We Thank have you. leaked Indian data, so someone in the ranks is not happy in India with what is going on, and they've slipped some extraordinary new information. Remember, in my promo, I said we have new leaked color images that we're never supposed to have. They came out the back door through a source. I can identify the source because he's a public person. He obviously is not going to you know, engage on who leaked him this information, and we don't want to know. We just know that it's real because it totally corroborates everything we projected from what they had released last Saturday, which was like one photo. One photo. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what I mean. You make this tremendous uh, step for humanity because apparently no one has gone to the South Pole. Well, no, no one has. Pub- no, no, as far as yeah, we know. Pu- publicly, at least, right? Exactly. And, and yet this is all we get. And Richard, one last thing before I sort of you know, let move aside and let someone else come on. Do you really buy that the lander is going to just fizzle out? I know Ron really believes that, and, and that's what the Indians have said. Ron's just recapitulating what, what they've said. But do you really buy that? Is it, is it truly the temperatures are going to knock no, this thing out? No, it's not that – look, it's not the temperatures. We've got, you know, spacecraft living in environments which are, are planned to be even colder than the south pole of the moon during total night in those, you know, permanently shattered craters. Um, I forget how many years ago is 1966. Somebody do the math for me. But in 1966, in June, NASA landed for the first time their unmanned Surveyor 1 spacecraft uh, uh, on uh, uh, the Sea of of Storms, Oceanus Procellarum. And I, that night, fortuitously, through a whole bunch of things we don't have time to go into here, wound up working for NBC that night as a consultant. And so I was there present live looking over all the screens when we successfully landed, we, the United States, an unmanned robot on the moon that was infinitely more primitive than the spacecraft the Indians landed a few days ago. For the first thing, there were no, you know, chips. There were no, you know, solid state circuits. There were at best transistors. Transistors do not like cold, and they don't like cold contrasts, like two different temperatures at the the same time. And everybody expected after two weeks of lunar day, when Surveyor 1 went into lunar night, that would be the last we would hear of it. And the next morning, next lunar morning, 14 days later, it comes back on the air. And every lunar morning for months, back in the primitive dark ages of space of 1966, Surveyor 1 came back and broadcast loudly, I'm here. And they took photographs and did more analysis and took more photographs. And it kept going on and on and on. So finally, when the deputy administrator for uh, uh, NASA uh, visited me at the museum in Springfield, and we kind of hung out together for a couple of days, and he helped me pull my car out of a snowdrift. It was winter. I said to him rather, you know, amusingly, I said, uh, you know, Homer, are, are you ever going to get that thing to turn itself off or do you have to send somebody up there to beat it to death with a stick? Because NASA, in their perspective in the 60s, they did not plan for these rover, these, these rovers, these landers to survive more than one lunar day. And so they didn't allocate separate radio frequencies to Surveyor 2, Surveyor 3, Surveyor 4, etc., that were planned in the series to go to various parts of the moon and try to analyze, you know, the environment on the a large number of landing sites on the side of the moon facing the Earth, the Earth side. So they could not launch Surveyor 2 to land on the moon until they somehow got Surveyor 1 to shut up, to uh-huh. peacefully and quietly and benignly die. And it refused to. It became a kind of an inside joke. So we're now, however many decades later, we've got state-of-the-art technology, all solid state, no tubes, no mirrors, no 
you know, uh, half-assed attempts to keep things warm or cold. And they're all saying very loudly, oh, the mission's going to die in two weeks. It's going to die in one week. It's going to die in four days. That's why ostensibly they put the rover in a park position, waiting for the sun to come again on the hope. They say officially in the rather slim hope that it will revive on the coming lunar sunrise. I think it's all a cover story. Because frankly, what they will do is say, tsk, tsk, it just didn't survive. And then they will continue with what Keith Laney has proudly claimed as his copyrighted title for his website, a hidden Indian mission. Otherwise, why would you park your rover if it's only going to last four more days, four days ahead of time, and have it just sit there doing nothing? It and makes- then why would you... Go ahead. Well, and why would you even spend the time to come up with these funky names like wisdom? You know, like, come on. Supreme wisdom. Yeah, exactly. To me, that's a, that's a cover for the ancient ETs who built the stuff on the moon. Stuff, staggering stuff that people freak out about because they can't imagine the scale. That would be if you encounter their libraries or whatever archives they left would be, by our standards, supreme wisdom. I have a feeling, I can't prove it yet, but I have a feeling the little Pregan rover, Supreme Wisdom, is trundling off toward that pyramid we see uh, in, in the south about uh, a mile and a half away. And it can get there and do the analysis and close-up imaging in plenty of time to then wait for lunar dawn, not 50 feet from the Pregan land, from the uh, uh, Vikram lander, but maybe a mile or two judging by the photographs we've got. Again, that's just a speculation. I want to clearly, uh, you know, label what we know and what we suspect based on a lot of Sherlock Holmes weirdness around what should have been a very straightforward third world look. We've joined the big guys club, Indian lunar mission. Okay, um, let me bring on, uh, is Bruguero with us yet? I don't think so, okay? Let me let me bring on uh, Laura, because Laura, I think you have some questions. And if you have one that we can answer, we'll try. If not, we'll wait for other people to join us. Hi. Uh, well, the first thing that came to my mind was in this country of India of 1.4 billion people, why – look, you've referred to it as a third world country – I don't know if that's accurate, but why is this moon mission so important? And how are the people of India feeling, the people begging on the streets? Okay, I mean, let's call it what it is. How do they feel about all this money being spent on a mission to the moon that has yielded what? So it reminds me of aircraft carriers they are a show of force is this a show of force by this country you mean india yeah well it's it's an effort to join the very exclusive club but why because of what we really know is there the nations that get access to et libraries first that bring back samples material first will have a leg up on everybody else because remember even in a few years, technology and science progress at an at a logarithmic rate. It's not linear. There's a thing called Moore's Law, where in the computer sciences, you know, knowledge doubles every 18 months. You can imagine how far ahead of terrestrial civilization a an artifact-structured technological civilization on the moon had to be. And if you get access to their to their archives, to their knowledge base to their libraries, as I keep saying, and you keep that information to yourself, then you don't have to share with anybody and you can leap ahead by light years while everybody else is kind of waiting to catch up. That's one potential reason. I think there are more deeper philosophical reasons connected to India's ancient mythology, which Modi and a lot of us believe is really ancient terrestrial history, maybe as old as 30,000 years. Um, so I think there's both geopolitical 
reasons that people would understand and much deeper reasons that we're going to be exploring in some depth, I hope, tonight for why India might be keeping the biggest secret in the solar system secret. And, of course, it's only secret from everybody except for the governments of the world that already all know what's there. And that includes Russia, China, Japan, India, Britain, France, the U.S., etc., etc. It's like there's an in-game and an out-game, and the Indians have joined the in-crowd because they've made it, and they thereby proven they can do it again. Now, when you talk about cost, uh, remember the disparity between the U.S. average income, which is about 70000 a year, and the average Indian citizen income, which is about 2000 a year, is what makes in terms of the world economic development councils and banks and IMF and all that, the official declaration of India as a third world nation. It's strictly a an economic argument. One argued last week, and I would support that, that because of what they've done, uh, they are definitely leapfrogged into the first world uh, cadre, at least in terms of high technology. In terms of how much they're spending, the Chandrian 3 mission costs $77 million. That's all. $77 million. That's a little more than coffee money for a year at NASA headquarters. You know, it's it's pocket change compared to weapon systems and other nations, space programs, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not exactly taking food out of the mouths of all the people on Twitter or X and all the other social media who have been inundating the Indian government, ISRO, Modi's office, et cetera, with tens and tens of thousands of incredibly congratulatory emails and texts and responses to the mission. So, and I'm hoping we can have Arun, you know, check us on this. My impression is that the, quote, average Indian citizen is so proud that their nation has now joined the big boys club that they're not looking at the rupees at all, at all. They're so proud, but what about everybody, all the citizens uh, of India who don't own a computer, don't own a smartphone, aren't on Twitter? How do they feel? I mean, we're just hearing from the people who... Right, exactly, who are technologically blessed. Well, I don't know of any polls, you know, opinion polls, Gallup, etc., that are run on the streets of India to find out how the average poor Indian citizen feels, but I have the feeling that they're not looking at this as a bottom line thing. They're looking at this as an Indian. We did it. We're we're up there among you know the elites, even if if pride is a is a thin substitute for lack of bread. And just one more point: when you go to Israel's website and Israel? click on Israel. Oh, Israel. Okay. Israel's yeah. what? Yeah. ISRO's right, website. Right, right. The, the Indian right. Space Agency. Yes. And you click on the Chandrayaan 3 image gallery. There are a few small, low resolution photos of the moon's surface. And then everything after that, you get these great, big, beautiful photos of the launch, of the rocket, mm-hmm. of the pre launch. It's almost like. They're more interested or proud, want to show what they accomplished and not the fruits of their labor. So it's all about, yeah, we got there. Okay, you're there. Now, why are you there? Well, that's kind of the same perspective that Ron has had. So if if you're at the end of the first tranche of your questions, let me turn to Ron. Ron, you've been listening. What are your thoughts? I was just about to step in there. And Richard, you should sit, you should sit down because I'm actually going to say something nice about you. Uh, the um, uh, No, uh, Andrew got one thing wrong, uh, which is I didn't tell him that I expected the um, little rover to give up the ghost. And you, uh, Richard, have a perfectly plausible explanation for the fact that the thermal shock problem is less there 
than uh, in places where other stuff has landed on the moon. So the, the likelihood that it will survive uh, is, you know, thereby higher. I can't say that I know all the details, but obviously they built the stuff as well as they could. And uh, they they make a pretty good cell phone, too. So I, uh, in case, the case of Laura, everybody in India has one. They have a, They already have a phone. They build everybody else's. It's uh, just because the economic strata there uh, seem radically spread out compared to what we think of. It's it's just it's a different system, and they're used to it. You know, they they aren't starving because the um, uh, because Israel mounted a moon mission. It's something that the whole country feels proud about, and you can look on social media, and there's plenty. Of entries from people saying everything that you that the audience has heard tonight and more. You know, there are people that are saying, "Well, you mean that's it?" And people that are saying, "Well, we made it! Yay, yay, India!" You know, all these things are quite normal. They just have a different system there. Remember, they used to be under a very strict caste system, which the uh, it lingers even though it's not struck aside. So, you know, there there was an expectation built in there that some people could never rise above a certain point. Uh, and they don't really have that anymore. So there's no reason, you know, for anybody there to feel bad about it. As far as joining the world stage, I think they're being cautious. I think that the reason that they did the mission was to prove that they could do a landing, which is the, as far as most people's attention spans take them. Oh, look. They landed, and they did a beautiful job of landing it after a couple of tries. Again, you get points for that. You know, you, they went right back in there, tried it again, and they won. You know, it's like a Rocky movie. <laughs> so uh, the anything else is gravy. They have not played it up. And I think, Richard, again, you're quite right. They're, uh, if they do find something, uh, if it has political value, they'll bring it up. But the overall secrecy about what's going on with the moon, uh, they're not going to tread on that directly. Uh, that would put them in a bigger fight ring than they're, uh, you know, realistically ready for. It's obvious what the politics are. You know, as you said, that huge visage of uh, the um, uh, prime minister looking down upon everything uh, <laughs> was, well, he was actually looking obviously at a much smaller screen that uh, we assume it's smaller that he was facing and we couldn't see that but it, you know the net result was that his focused view looked like he was glaring down at the people in mission control <laughs> and that would be pretty intimidating if your boss is staring down at you like that uh, but yeah no I think it's all taking a rather a rather normal course but, uh, but you know don't sell the Indian people short just because their country has a um, what seems like a lot of poverty. I don't know if you've been there. I've okay. been there. Uh, it's a, guys, we are at the top of the hour. Everyone hold it there. When we come back, I'm going to bring on Robert Morningstar, who has a very interesting way of digging in his role of civilian intelligence analyst. And uh, I'm informed that Arun will be with us in uh, probably the next half hour or so. So we'll get a direct read, Laura, on your question from someone with very deep roots into India. You're on the other side of midnight. We're discussing an extraordinarily historic mission. Even if the people deeply involved and the audience they're playing to may have no idea what they've really found. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link 
in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.